Hey, everybody. Welcome to the 10 to 12 podcast, the official podcast of Teamsters Local 1150. I'm Stephen French. And I'm Jason Shoemaker. So we've been away for a while taking care of those contract negotiations for our nearly 3,800 local 1150 members in Connecticut and Florida and Maryland, um, as well as taking care of some much needed time off for the holidays. So we've been away for a while, right? been a while um and and um here we are we're going to try to get back into a regular rhythm every other friday dropping a new episode um so today's episode might feel a little different might sound a little different we're dispensing with a lot of our regular content to try to concentrate on talking about the new collective bargaining agreement that we just ratified um there's a lot to talk about so let's dive right into it before we get too deep into the contract, I think it's important we talk about the VSO. Yeah. We've got a lot of uh, questions coming in about the VSO, and obviously that's something we negotiated as part of this contract. I agree. Um, so we're going to have a voluntary separation package being offered during 2023, 2024, and 2025. Yep. Um, it's limited to employees age 55 and older, and basically you're going to have to apply every year. Yep. If you know if you want to go in 2024, that's the year you're going to apply in January. Right. That's a that's a question we're getting a lot already. Uh, should I apply this year if I want to go in 2025? The answer is no. Right. Right. You apply like you said in the year that you want to leave. Yeah. So this year, for example, we've got a deadline to apply of February 17th. Yep. And employees are going to find out a response from the company by March 6th. They're going to notify you of a date. And you're going to have one week to accept that date. Yep. Once you accept, you cannot revoke. Right. So That's that, a really important thing for people to understand. Yeah. And it's a big change from last time. Last yep. time people were able to revoke. That creates a lot of headaches trying to plan. Mm. Um, so to give everybody a fair opportunity to plan and to make this decision, there's not going to be that option to revoke. Yeah. And, and let's be clear about this. This is not a joke, folks, right? This is, this is the real deal. It is irrevocable. There's not going to be, hey, I'm going to call Rocco because I'm getting cold feet and Rocco's going to get me out of this. That's not happening, right? There's, there's going to have to be some crazy extenuating circumstances, right? Some emergent situation um, where you can appeal to the company to back out, but um, it's not happening under normal circumstances. And I remember negotiations. The company's point was this isn't a decision that people take lightly or yep. make lightly for that matter. So it's something that, you know, a slight change shouldn't really impact. So as far as the the application period and all that stuff goes, I think that's going to be the normal cadence every year of the offer. So for 24 and 25, we're going to have an application period that goes from January 1 to mid-February. And then that first week in March, you're going to get an offer and you're going to have seven days to, to, um, to accept that offer. And the exit dates are going to range between March 30th and September 30th. So it's going to be a regular cadence. Yep. The priority this year is going to be for final assembly to get them out, but it's going to go strictly by seniority. So yep. we've also had questions about that. Seniority is what's going to rule here. Yeah. Overall seniority is going to rule. Those folks out in AFO, um, the only advantage they're getting, if you want to even call it an advantage, is they're going to get earlier exit dates. That's the only thing. So there is some confusion out there about, oh, AFO is going to get priority on the on the VSO. That is not true. So like we said, it's going to go by seniority. In 2023, the company will accept no more than 250 applicants. And then the following year, 2024, it'll be 150 applicants and then a remaining 100 in 2025. Right. Um, there's going to be two separation options available to you. Um, they're all going to include having one week of severance for each year of completed service. The difference is going to come down to your lump sum payment and the amount of uh, free medical, dental, and vision coverage. So option one you're going to get a one-time lump sum bonus of $20,000 and 12 months of free medical, dental, and vision coverage for the employee and their dependents. And anytime you do this, it's going to be the plan that you're currently on for that year. Right. That's important to know. So if you're, if you're in BYO option one, uh, that's what you're going to get going out the door. If you're currently covering a spouse, your spouse will get covered. If you're not covering anyone, you're not going to be adding those people onto your your coverage when you go out the door. It's the exact plan that you're that you're currently in. That's what you're going to get. So option two is going to be one week of severance pay for each completed year of service. You're going to get a one-time lump sum bonus of five thousand dollars. 
But in this option, you're going to get 24 months of free medical, dental, and vision for you and your dependents. Um, so that helps people a lot of times stretch out till they get to a, an age where they can get on Medicare. Right. Really important for everybody out there to know if you're interested in this. I know there are a lot of members who are going to their stewards and saying, hey, what's my number? You know, what's my seniority number? Where do I fall on the seniority list? And that's fine if you want to know that information. But don't let that impact your decision to either apply or not apply. The bottom line is, if you're interested in taking this VSO this year, apply. If your seniority number is 2,000, apply. Right? You just never know how the chips are going to fall, so please just apply if you want the VSO. Don't let anything else enter into your mind when making that decision. And just a general note, if you're looking for general pension numbers, you can call up the uh, Lockheed Martin Employee Service Center, and you can call up Raytheon as well for your aspect of the pension that was owned by UTC. Yep. Um, and they can give you kind of general numbers. Um, there's really no point in setting up a meeting with John or DJ or Gary until you've got a date in hand. Right. Uh, the last thing I want to mention, we're going to be having benefit briefings at Union Hall in Connecticut, and there's going to be some in Florida as well. I'm not sure. Are we having, I don't know if we're having them in packs. Um, I'm not sure either. But keep an eye out online. We'll definitely get those up online on the app. Uh, the Connecticut Union Hall meetings are going to be Tuesday, January 24th and Wednesday, January 25th. And Florida will be on Tuesday, January 31st, and Wednesday, February 1st. Excellent. So, again, if you're confused about stuff, if you have questions about stuff, please give Union Hall a call. Ask your questions. Um, make sure that you're, you're well-educated on this before, um, before you do anything, right? It's, it's an important thing. Um, it's an important decision to make to separate from the company. So make sure you have all the information that you need. So let's kind of go through what Jason and I are going to do is we're going to go through that that contract ratification handout that everybody got at the ratification meetings um, and and talk in different levels of detail about the different changes that were made to the contract for 2023. The first one is in Article 3 um, called Cooperation. We kind of went back and forth on this one at the table. Um, this was meant to be a neutrality agreement. Um, and neutrality is, in essence, the company taking a hands-off approach if the union decides to try to unionize other Lockheed Martin facilities, workforces, what have you. Um, we, frankly, fell short of a full-on neutrality agreement um, because the company would not commit to taking a complete hands-off approach. Um, but they did speak to their philosophy and Lockheed has a pretty a, a pretty agreeable philosophy when it comes to this type of thing they don't hire outside counsel they don't hire those you know what we talk about on this podcast all the time those law firms those anti-union law firms that go out there and create campaigns against the union they don't do that they do speak with their employees about their philosophy and and you know they're going to tell employees that they don't think they need a union but they're not going to badmouth the union. They've agreed to do that. And we have a cooperation uh, agreement now that, um, you know, the company agrees to respect the process of organizing. Um, and, you know, they're not going to use anti-union tactics during that process. So that's good. That's a good step forward. Definitely a good thing to have in there. Uh, next up, Article 5, we've got new employee orientation. The union will now be fully responsible for new employee orientation. Uh, the company is going to provide us with a list of new hires, to, and they're going to ensure that the employees are told to attend. Uh, but that's going to be a big benefit for us to help get people down here and kind of welcome them into the union, not just the company. Yep, it, it's a nice thing to have. And it's, you know, we've been doing this for several years now. Um, since COVID, we've been doing new employee orientation right here at Union Hall. Um, and to your point, Jay, it's really, it's it's a good thing to get people, you know, in the first couple of weeks of their employment and get them down here to Union Hall and expose them to the union. Yeah. Right. 
Um, I don't want to call it an indoctrination because that's not what it is. It's an orientation, but it is, you know, um, union leaning. And, and we talk a lot about the union. We talk a lot about the benefits of being in a union. Um, and that's good for us. Yeah, it definitely helps people kind of navigate the new system that they're in yep. and kind of learn what benefits are out there. We see a lot more people signing up to the app. Yep. Thanks to that. Yeah. And and listen, this is not just, and I know the companies listen to this, right? This is not um, a union indoctrination. We talk about your benefits. We talk about your entitlements at length. We talk about the attendance policy. There's a lot of conversation about following rules, doing the right thing in that factory, um, prioritizing, working to schedule. So, um, you know, there there's a lot of stuff we talk about that's important to both the union and the company to making both parties successful in this partnership. So um, it, it's a pretty good program, and I'm glad that we have it memorialized in the contract. Absolutely. Uh, the, the next thing we have from Article 5 is a change to the way that dues are collected. So we're going to adjust the way that the company collects back dues and arrears so that it matches the union's computer systems. There was a ton of errors before with the collection of back dues. Yep. That made a lot of administrative work for Holly down here. And it also gave a lot of headaches to our members who were trying to figure out what was going on and why their dues were doubled. Right. Um, so this is just going to kind of streamline that process and make it easier. Yeah, this is pretty much background stuff, right? Members members aren't really going to feel this um, other than things will probably be smoother as far as their, their back collection of dues. You know, something that just came to me we should have mentioned before. If anybody wants to look at the contract summary that we're referencing, it's now available on our website, and it's in the app as well. Yep. Um, so make sure that you go in and check it out. Yep. Uh, next up, we got Article 6. There's a few more categories in here to address, but documentation of Step 1 resolutions. So we have a new agreement with the company that we're going to use our Step 1A agreement form from the grievance procedure, and those are going to be an official document that's going to be signed by the steward, and it's going to be signed by the management representative or supervisor. And this is really important, right? So Article 6 is the grievance procedure. And, and you know, if you've never been through the grievance procedure as a member, you might not be familiar with what we're talking about. But how this helps us is, um, you know, in the past— we would make agreements in the first step of the grievance procedure. The first step is an oral step. It's a conversation. Um, and, and there were no official forms to be filled out. And, you know, and we ran into situations over the years where an agreement would be made. It's a handshake agreement. And, you know, a couple of years later, we're all saying, hey, remember that agreement? And the supervisors are gone. Or the supervisor says, no, I don't remember that agreement. So now we have the ability to document those agreements that happen. Yep. So that was step one of the grievance procedure. Step three is going to have some changes as well. So grievance meetings at the third step of the grievance procedure are now going to include a member of management and a union-designated note-taker. And this is going to streamline that process as well, should help us resolve grievances quicker and more efficiently. What it's doing is it's putting the decision-makers in the room. So there was a lot of times where the union would argue with HR about a grievance, and they'd have to go back to management to get more information. Now we're going to have management in the room able to you know, respond to our arguments and hopefully get things done quicker. Yep. I'm, I'm really excited to experience that. I actually have some third-step grievances uh, scheduled for next week, so I'm looking forward to seeing what that looks like and feels like. I, I think it's going to be a lot better for us. And then another big change to the grievance procedure is with our arbitration language. So subcontracting was uh, excluded in our past contract. Right. We've now got the ability to arbitrate subcontracting, and we've added three new arbitrators to the panel of uh, potential arbitrators for cases. So that's right. going to make it easier to schedule. And, and that is, and it just brings more folks in. Um, who are going to learn our contract and be familiar with the faces and the people that, that come to arbitrations. Um, it's always good to have more people involved in that. Um, and just uh, so everybody understands, the three new names, um, two of them came from the union and one of them came from the company. So we feel like we got um, a good deal on that. Perfect. So next up is job misclassification grievances. In the event that you've got a successful job misclassification grievance, it now must be paid within 21 days of the grievance settlement. If not, the employee will receive a 10% increase to the agreed-upon settlement. Yeah, that's a good thing. 
And the other good thing here is if you have two or more consecutive misclass grievance payouts to the same employee, it's now going to trigger a meeting to discuss promoting the misclassified employees. Yeah, and and I'm I'm not sure if if members out there who haven't again haven't been involved in this type of grievance understand how good that is. Uh, you know, we've been in battles over the years, battle, battle, battle over um, misclasses and promoting folks that are being misclassed. The company abuses the misclass language, um, and and what they'll do is they'll assign work that you know it's above what you should be doing. Um, and they'll just misclass you. They'll pay you not every 90 days. They'll pay you out because if they promote you, it's a bypass. Right. Right. So they've kind of bastardized that language over the years and they've gotten away with with bypassing people by using misclass pay. And this prevents them from doing that now after two misclass payments. They're going to have to consider promoting folks, and um, and they're going to have to promote everybody, right? They're going to have to promote people who would have been bypassed before. So that's that's good stuff for us. So I definitely think it's worth mentioning. Uh, the union is never going to try and just promote a junior employee above senior people and cause a bypass. We're not going to negotiate a bypass. So Correct. we're going to fight like hell to get them to promote everybody down to the person that they want to get to. Um, but we're not going to you know, do anything that's going to violate a member's rights. Absolutely um, So this is just to initiate a conversation. It's just to get that negotiating rolling, yep. um, and hopefully we get some positive outcomes. Yeah, I, I, can, I can pretty much guarantee that this language is not ever going to result in uh, a business agent or a steward agreeing to a bypass. Right. That's not happening. Next up is going to be steward requests. So we changed the language for requesting a steward. A steward request must be complied with without delay, uh, but in no case it will take more than two hours. Right. So if the request is made within two hours of the end of the shift, the steward has to be notified before the end of the shift. Yep. And, you know, the intent of that language is not to let somebody just say, oh, I'll go notify the steward at 1159 so I don't have to deal with it. No. This is supposed to be complied with without delay. What that is in there for, that two hours at the end of the shift, is to make sure that the steward's notified in cases where you might request at 11 o'clock at night, yep. the shift ends at 12, or, you know, first shift, different hours, but right. making sure that the steward's at least aware. Yep, so that the steward can, at the worst-case scenario, the steward comes and sees you the first minute of the next day, Yep. right? Your next shift, the steward is there because the steward already knows about the request. Yeah, but you can be sure we're not going to tolerate them trying to just, you know, arbitrarily delay you being uh, represented. Right. Uh, workers' compensation steward. So that position has just had a title change. It's now workers' compensation coordinator. And full disclosure on that, right, the, the reason for that change, um, workers' compensation is a really difficult process to learn. There's a lot of training involved. And quite frankly, um, you know, we don't want to train somebody you know, to become proficient at workers' compensation stuff and then lose a steward election and have to train a new steward. So we have an obligation under our bylaws to elect our stewards. Uh, we don't have to elect a coordinator, so we're going to appoint the coordinator and um, and have them have them learn that work and stay in that position. That's frankly what it's all about. Yeah, that's really a position where you have to have somebody who's fully trained operating in it. Yep. You, you can't be... Uh trying to catch up there. Yep, no question. Uh, quarterly ESH meetings are now memorialized in our contract. So ESH stewards, leadership, HR will meet on a quarterly basis and discuss any environmental safety and health issues. Yep. So this is just, these are meetings that have been happening all along. We just wanted to make sure that that was memorialized in language in the contract so that the company can't arbitrarily end those meetings and stop doing them. Next up, we're going to start digging into Article 7, which gets into the economic portion of the contract. Uh, we're going to start with COLA. So COLA adjustments will continue on the same semi-annual period. We do them twice a year. Yep. Uh, the COLA limit was actually increased from $0.18 cents to $0.30. Cents. And the big benefit here is that COLA can no longer be decreased. So right. we used to have the ability that if the formula caused COLA to go down, we could actually lose some of that money. Yep. Uh, that's no longer going to happen. And this is actually, there's been some confusion about the COLA fold-in, as it's called. Mm -hmm. This is why we have this in our contract. Um, in the past, 
you had to wait until the new contract to fold all those numbers in because if there was a decrease, that would have changed the base rate. Right. So that's why we fold in COLA at the end of a contract. Right. Um, and that brings us into our next point, which is the wage increases that we just got, which were really historic increases, bigger than I ever have mm-hmm. seen in my career. Yep. Um, so we start by taking all the COLA from the previous contract, which is currently in your check, but it's not a part of your base rate. It's part of what's called your comp rate. So you've got your base rate, which is your base wages, and your comp rate, which includes COLA. Right. So what we do is we fold in that $0.89 cents of COLA from the life of the previous contract into your base rate, and that changes our wage scales. Um, but that was money you were already seeing. So yep. for anybody that was questioning that. Yeah, just just to be clear, a lot of people thought, oh, I'm going to get the COLA rolled into my wages and then get another $0.89. Cents. Right. And I'm, I'm not sure how they came to believe that, but that is not true. Yeah, so now that we got that cleared up, uh, let's get into the increases. So we have what are called equity adjustments trying to close the two-tier wage gap. Obviously, we weren't successful in getting rid of it entirely, um, but we were able to get the company to agree to a $2 increase prior to the gross wage increase going in for anybody on Tier 2 for this year. And that amount is going to be $1 in 2024, $0.50 in 2025, $0.50 in 2026, and then in 2027, there will be no adjustment, equity adjustment. It'll just be a straight GI. So let's talk about this because I think it's important for people to understand the the process that we went through. You know, when you're not sitting at the table, when you're not part of those backroom conversations, you don't necessarily understand what's happening. Um, the, The union negotiating committee proposed to eliminate the second tier wage scale throughout negotiations. Uh, We stuck to that proposal because it's what we wanted. Um, and, and to be honest, we kind of knew we weren't going to get it right. We knew where the company stood on it, but we felt that it would have been a disservice to our tier two members to not propose that and to not dig in on that proposal. I I want everybody to understand that this was an issue that we would have had to go on strike over. And even if we did go on strike over it, I'm not sure we would have won. Yeah. That's true. So uh, I I think this is the good time to have a conversation about the negotiating committee and the union leadership making responsible decisions during the collective bargaining process. Um, It's important for us to make decisions um, that are responsible. It's not a responsible thing to go to our membership at the end of this process and recommend a strike vote when we're pretty certain that a strike won't get us what we need. Right. Right? So to ask the membership to walk off the job and to go on strike for an issue that we're not going to get or for, you know, for a benefit that we're not going to get is really irresponsible. It's irresponsible to our members, to their families. Um, so those are the decisions that are made in the back room. Yeah, when, when you see the strength of this contract, and you know the other thing is, as a negotiating member, you have to have your pulse on the membership and what their needs are. Yep. We've got a ton of members getting ready to retire. We've got a retirement package on the table. And to convince those members to go out and strike rather than retire would have been a very difficult proposition. Yeah. Um, so you, know, you just have to fight and do the best that you can do each time, but you have to kind of be aware of what you're asking your membership for. Yeah. So we went into this promising our tier two members that we would improve this condition, right? That we would at least close the gap on the two tier wage scale. And we did that. At the end of this contract, the gap between the two scales is going from 25% down to around 12%. So that's a significant closure of the gap. Yeah, and you're going to see some averages that we did in this contract summary. But in the first year alone, just based on averages between all the different wage scales, uh, Tier 1 is getting a 4% increase. When you add in all the adjustments for Tier 2, it comes out to approximately 12.7%. Right, and that's kind of in the middle, right? Some people are getting a little more than that. Some people are getting a little less than that. Um, But that's the average, right? 12.7% is the average for a Tier 2 worker in year one of this contract. That's amazing. Yeah, and we should have mentioned this earlier in the conversation, but if whether or not you're getting an equity adjustment, the GIs each year are the same. Right. So we're going to have 4% in 2023, 
four percent in 24, three and a half in 2025, three and a half in 2026, and three percent in 2027. Yep. And the advantage again, you know, we talk about going early. Um, the company always wants to negotiate early and get an agreement done early. We ratified this contract almost eight weeks early, eight weeks before the current agreement expired. So what's the advantage to us? And it's it's in the wages, right? Because we get our wage increases two months early. So everybody starts earning more money two months before they would have if we let it go to the expiration date. So, And that's a pretty big advantage if, if you're out there and you want to do that math. Um, that's a lot of money in our members' pockets. And there's a few more ways people are getting more money in this package, too. The next one's going to be the automatic wage progression. Um, so you used to get $0.10 cents for your automatic wage progression. It's now going to be on a fixed schedule. It's going to take place on the last period of January, the last period of May, and the last period of September. And the wage progressions are going to be increased from $0.10 cents up to $0.25. Cents. Right. So let's make sure everybody understands that. So your automatic wage progression that you used to get every what, 15 weeks, you would get a dime. Um, it, that's no longer happening. Everybody who is an hourly worker is going to get their wage progressions at the same time now. The other one we're getting a lot of questions about is with the floating holidays, paid holidays, what is paid, what is not. Um, and that might be good to give a little background from negotiating. Obviously, we asked for Martin Luther King, um, Juneteenth, and Veterans Day to all be paid holidays. Yep. It's a difficult thing to get the company to accept when they're trying to drive attendance in a positive direction. It is. And and it's also really expensive. I, I, I want to talk about the cost of a paid holiday um, because we've done the math, right? And, and people think, oh, what's the big deal? You know, it's just three extra days a year or it's just one extra day a year. Um, just so everybody knows out there who's listening – one paid holiday over a five-year contract costs the company $29 million. Wow. That's a lot of money. So to take that lightly would be ignorant for us, right? We understand that it's a big cost to the company, and it also increases absenteeism because a holiday is absenteeism. Yeah, and it's a day where they're not earning. Right. So um, those are tough things to get. To get extra holidays are really tough. So what did we get? So what we ended up with is we used to have Good Friday as a paid holiday. And what the company had said to us is, you know, why don't we give your members more flexibility to choose the dates that are important to them? So let's convert Good Friday. Instead of being a, a paid holiday, we'll make it no points, no pay. And then we'll give you a second floating holiday. And for anybody who's wondering what we call a floating holiday, the company in their system calls a birthday holiday. Right. So you're now going to have, instead of one birthday holiday, the equivalent of two birthday holidays. Yep. And you can use that anytime you want throughout the year. If you still want to get paid on Good Friday, even though it's going to be no points, no pay, you could use your floating holiday or any other entitlement. Yep. Um, and same thing goes for you know Martin Luther King or Juneteenth or Veterans Day. If you want to use your floating holiday that day rather than take the no points, that's up to you. Yep. So, and, and listen, we liked that idea. The company came to the table with that idea, and that was a good idea. So, um, because quite frankly, not everybody cares about Good Friday as a paid holiday. So now we get to, we get way more flexibility. You can use that holiday anytime you want. You can still take Good Friday off with no points, no pay. Plus, you can take Juneteenth off with no points, no de- no pay. So we went from two no points, no pay days to four no points, no pay days, and we got an extra floating holiday. Yeah, not bad. I think that's that's a good win for us. Um, you know, it doesn't cost the company any extra money, uh, but it's a win for us. So for anybody on third shift... Uh, we were able to memorialize in our contract your shift differential now. So it used to be a little bit more difficult to understand uh, because everybody on third shift works six and a half and gets paid for eight hours. Now, rather than just have it be an hours, uh, worded in hours, we've memorialized it with a percentage. So third shift now gets 23.08% on the first six and a half hours worked. Yep, and that's good. Um, and I know um, we'll talk about the elephant in the room, right? There is a, an exception to that. The, the folks out in the powerhouse who work third shift, they work an eight-hour shift, so they do not qualify for this language, right? Um, this language specifically is for third shift workers who are scheduled to work a six-and-a-half-hour shift. 
So um, the folks out in the powerhouse get a different shift differential, which is um, talked about in a special letter of agreement that we'll talk about later on that speaks directly to the powerhouse. Yeah, and if anybody's wondering, the reason for that is our powerhouse needs to be running 24 hours a day. Right. So it's it's got that different language in there to make sure that those operations continue and you don't lose power in the building. Right. Uh, next up would be reporting pay. So reporting pay now applies to employees who are scheduled to work and are not notified at least two hours prior to the completion of the previous shift or more than two hours prior to the start of the affected shift if the closure is due to weather. This is a big win for us. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, I, I think we kind of glazed over this during ratification. Um, I think it's important to talk about this because in the past, uh, reporting pay only applied to people who reported to work. So if the company decided last minute to close a plant and you showed up for work, you would get reporting pay. Now, if you're scheduled to work that day, if the company doesn't follow those guidelines, those timelines for letting us know when a plant is closing, they're going to have to pay everybody who is scheduled to work that shift. Yeah, and one really good thing about this is, say you drove 30 minutes or an hour to work in a snowstorm, and 10 minutes from the building, you get a text message from your coworker, oh, did you see the plants closed? You should still get paid for that day. That's right. So th that's why we put in these time limits here, to, to protect you in the event that that happens. Yep. And now weather is in there as well. So the company's going to have to let us know what within two hours of the start of a shift if they're closing a plant for weather, for reasons of weather. Yeah. And now they're going to use an electronic system for those notifications, right? Right. LM Notify, they're going to use that. And that'll be easier for everybody. And it's it's easier for the company to not have to go into the plant in a snowstorm and post a flyer on the wall. Right. So um, maybe it's important for us to urge our members to sign up for LM Notify. If you're not registered in LM Notify yet, you should do that. Um, because otherwise, LM Notify is just going to send an email to your company email address and you're not going to get it. So um, register for LM Notify, put your cell phone number in there so they can text you or call you or whatever you want them to do. But really good idea to sign up for LM Notify. It is a pretty good system um, and it works. Yeah, and while we're on the topic of plant closures, um, anybody who reports to work during a plant closure will now be paid double time for all hours worked during any shift that begins during a closure period. Right, so and and this speaks powerhouse directly to the powerhouse right. as well, right? The powerhouse folks um, for years were complaining that, hey, you know, we have to show up for work even when the plant is closed because, you know, we're essential. So, you know, we, we got them some language. And there's some other maintenance folks who have to show up as well. Um, but we got them some language now. If they have to report to work during a plant closure, they're going to earn double time while they're there. And that, that's great. We also had some changes to distribution of overtime and the way that we track the overtime language. You guys probably remember we changed our overtime system to be set periods. So we're now having that language memorialized in our contract. And any disparities measured over the 26 period um, are going to be automatically paid out on the dates that we've agreed to. Yep. Uh, there's also a new requirement. This is a big one to mm -hmm. equalize overtime between shifts within a 48 hour window. So we used to get a lot of complaints about how come first shift gets more hours or second shift gets more hours. We've now got a defined number that we can go after. And that's huge because. We used to argue these cases, but it was very hard to prove because there was no threshold identified. Right. So we're currently in the middle of a 26-week overtime assessment period. Um, so we've agreed with the company to wait until the end of that period. So that portion of the contract, that language, won't kick in until April 3rd. April 3rd is the start of the next 26-week overtime period. So we'll start looking at shift-to-shift -shift stuff at that time. For holiday pay, we had an agreement with the company that was sort of off the books um, that people would be paid for the holiday, even if they were under 30 days of service. That's now going to be memorialized in our contract as well. Um, and that's a good benefit for our new hires. Obviously, it's tough when you're just trying to earn your time. 
you shouldn't have to eat a holiday, especially we just came off that big Christmas shutdown. Yep. That's a lot of money to lose. So it's really a, a good benefit for anybody new coming in. It is. I, I, I never thought the language made much sense anyway. Um, I, I'm not sure what 30 days gets the company um, in holding that back for 30 days, but that that's good stuff. And then the other change too, there's uh, the 15 day limit on military duty for the purpose of qualifying for holiday pay has also been eliminated. Right. Which is, uh, again, if, if folks out there don't understand what that means. Um, there's a requirement to be in work 15 days prior to a holiday, 15 days following a holiday with some exceptions. Um, and, and folks who are on military duty, you know, they're serving our country out there. They're not getting paid for a holiday because they're out there um, you know, doing their two-week training or whatever it is. So we just eliminated that for, for folks who are on military duty. We had uh, some language added for job evaluations in that process. The company now is required to notify the union of all job evaluation decisions in writing. Uh, that used to be done orally, I believe, and it's yeah. definitely better to have these things on paper. Yep. Helps us kind of build our cases as we go, have yeah. a history and a better understanding. It's really weird that that was like that, right? The old language allowed the company to give an oral answer to a job evaluation and didn't require them to explain their decision. So literally under the old language, the company could just call up the job evaluation steward and say, answers no, we're not going to change the pay for this job. Yeah, so I imagine this is going to help us build cases over the years because sure. we're going to have kind of ideas of what the company's arguments are and how to counter them as we move sure. forward. And it's just logical, right? If you're if you're not going to honor the union's request to upgrade a job, you should first of all answer that in writing and you should explain why you're not going to. Right. As a steward, the next one hits home for me, salary performing hourly work. This is something that I hate to see. <laughs> I appreciate all you members who tip us off to this every time. Yep. Um, but the company must take action now on any valid grievance alleging that salary employees have performed hourly work and they must consider a monetary settlement. And I actually just had one of these cases that I grieved a couple weeks ago. Okay. Um, manager got on the aircraft, shoved an all into a hole to try and line up a cover and just started prying that cover around and damaged the cover, damaged the airframe. Thank nice. you for doing our job. Leave it to more qualified people. Right. And, and and listen, that's kind of the point, right? Well, it's not the point. But, I mean, they're not trained to do that work. They shouldn't be doing that work. And they're more to the point, they're not paid to do that work. We are. Yeah. That's and our work. And for me, the other thing, that manager, they don't go raise their hand and say, hey, I'm the one who damaged that. They wait and try to pin the blame on an hourly guy a lot of times. Yep. So They sure do. So make sure if you see that going on, protect our work. Please let your steward know. Right. And, and listen, this language, um, it doesn't have the teeth that we wanted it to have. We, we went after language that spelled out monetary settlements that had to happen if salary was performing our work. We didn't get that. You know, we got pushback from the company, um, but they did agree to this language, which, you know, holds them to having a conversation and considering monetary payouts. And when you have that language, that gives us the ability as a union to go after that stuff, right? Um, the language exists for a reason, so we're going to pursue monetary settlements every time. Yeah, and you guys are our teeth for this particular issue. So yep. there is nothing better than being a steward and within two minutes of a supervisor picking something up, getting a steward request, hey, that's our work, what are you doing? That creates the atmosphere in there where they know don't do that. This is a Teamster shop. That's their work. You don't touch it. Yep. And and let's talk really quick about um, things that sometimes people think is not salary performing hourly. One of my pet peeves, and I know, so you have your pet peeves. I have my pet peeves. Um, in this category, my pet peeve is supervisors expediting parts. Yep. They're not physically moving parts. They're not picking them up, but they're walking the shop floor. They're looking in tubs. They're pulling paperwork out of tubs. They're they're assessing. They're they're essentially doing a status on on a department, yep. right? Of all the parts in the department, that is expediting. Yeah, I'll That's go find work. it. 
I'll find the part and then I'll let you know where it is. Right. That's not their job. No, it's not their job. So so if you're out there, if you're a production control worker and your supervisor or a an operations supervisor is out there doing that stuff, they're doing your job. Please, let's take advantage of this new language and grieve that and try to get you some money. Yeah, and if you're a... a employee that orders your parts by handing the list to your supervisor, please don't do that because that's another way that they're performing our job. They're performing PC people's work. We see the same issue with uh, tool cribs a lot of times too, whether it's a missing tool or something that was left out. You'll see the foreman walking around trying to look for it rather than having somebody called in or another employee that's a tool crib attendant come out and do that work. There's a supervisor in um, facilities maintenance, and you know who you are if you're listening to this, um, who likes to take tools and drive them between plants, um, delivering tools for maintenance folks. Um, We all know who he is, and um, we're going to get some money next time he does it. Yeah, same with the guy from Bridgeport that uh, damaged that aircraft. Right. He likes to bring tools from Bridgeport over. Yep, so um, let's make sure we kind of get together and stop that stuff from happening. I actually had a case where, you know, we had a supervisor when he was newer, didn't really understand that he's not supposed to be uh, handing out tools. That's the tool crib attendance job. So we kind of gave him a, a chance to, had a conversation with him, I'll say, to give him some expectations on, you know, what he should and shouldn't be doing. Uh, a few weeks ago, and this is many months after that friendly conversation, we got a request for an employee in a tool crib. And he had an employee that's a mechanic walk up to the crib and say, hey, I've got two screwdrivers here. One of them's broken. Um, I don't know how to put this new one back in the box. And the tool crib attendant said to him, well, where did you get that screwdriver? Oh, well, I got it from the main tool crib or the hub tool crib in finals. Uh, the foreman let me in. And I said, what do you mean the foreman let you in? So we get the foreman in the grievance procedure, and he says, oh, yeah, I know I'm not allowed to touch tools. So I opened up the door, let a mechanic come in, and let him take a screwdriver. <laughs> <laughs> so you ask, why do we grieve these things, right? Yeah. He didn't have, you know, he didn't go look for the broken tip. This screwdriver they were trying to put into the box didn't even have a chip on it, so it's not going to read it. That's horrendous. So, yeah, that's how horrendous they get sometimes. Yeah. So if you see something, please make a request, let us know. But don't let them do our work. Wow. So next up is going to be promotional increases. We've, we're able to get a big win here as well. You used to get a minimum promotion of $0.60. Cents. So if you were topped out in your labor grade, your promotion would be a minimum of $0.60. Cents. That has now been increased to a full dollar. Yep. And that, that's big. Yeah. Um, I'm a little surprised we got that big an increase. Um, and they didn't even bat an eye on that one, so thank you. And that's something that we see very often. We do get members topped out, and that does make a big difference. If that weren't there, you know, that would make a big difference. No question. So when you get promoted now, it's it's a minimum of a $40 a week raise, right? Bare minimum, 40 bucks a week you're going to get. That's pretty significant. So the next one up is jury duty. Uh, They eliminated the 30-day cap on jury duty, so now there is no cap. Yeah, I was talking about this just yesterday at work, and I was talking about some of the stuff that people are ignoring in this contract, things that, that I think are pretty significant and, and folks are ignoring. Listen, if you get called for jury duty and you get put on a trial, under the old contract, you had 30 days. You had 30 days where the company would pay you the difference between what the court is paying you and what the company normally pays you. They would make up your day's pay for 30 days. And then you're on your own. Then you're making 50 bucks a day from the court. And if you're on the OJ trial, right, you're you're screwed. So removing that 30-day cap on jury duty pay is huge, potentially huge, right? I, I think... The chances of it happening are pretty slim, but for that one guy or girl, right, that ends up on that six-month trial, that's a really big deal for that person. Yeah, sometimes there's a big change that doesn't come up often, but if you get screwed by it, you sure as hell feel yep. it. So, yep. So it's good to have that in there. Yeah. Next up is going to be personal leave. Uh, there was a lot of great changes here. So new employees hired between January 1st and September 30th will receive three days of personal leave. Yeah. That's a big change from the prior year where you didn't get any. You got none in your first year. Um, All new hires will will receive five days of personal leave on January 1st of the year following the year in which they are hired. That's also better. Yep. And just to be clear there, if you're hired on December 15th, 
the next year you're going to get your five days. Yep. Just had a guy in new employee orientation yesterday who was hired at the end of November, and he has five days of personal time now. And then another thing I love to to hear is that personal leave is no longer going to disqualify you from perfect attendance. Really good. And that's going to clear up some of our other language. So bank points, personal time, you've heard us talk about that, carryover personal time. Um, you might still see those in the next year on your entitlement list, but those are going to be things that we don't need moving forward. Right. Uh, and the reason, obviously, being that we're not going to have it affect perfect attendance anymore. Those, that's why we had those benefits to begin with. Right. Uh, for bereavement leave, this is another huge benefit that we got added. Bereavement leave was increased from three days to five days. So you get 40 hours paid. Um, it used to have to terminate on the day of the funeral. Now you can use that time within 30 days past the date of the services. We were able to expand the definition of immediate family to include a few more uh, scenarios. Right. So this gives our members a lot more flexibility. It kind of, I think, is more in line with a lot, a lot of other companies and what they're doing. Yeah, uh, most employers, I think, give five days. And I want to be clear that, you know, and, and this was actually the company's suggestion. They wanted to make sure that it, it read as 40 hours of bereavement leave. So you can actually break up your bereavement leave. It's 40-hour benefit. You There's no requirement to use it in full-day increments, so it's not just five full days. You can use a half day here, a half day there. Um, so you can really... Um, you know, for for folks who are making funeral arrangements and things like that, and they only need a few hours one particular day, they can do that. So it's it's a really flexible benefit that I think is going to help our folks a lot. Here's another issue that's a big, important issue. Payroll errors. This is something that I think all of our members have had to deal with at some point. Yep. Um, payroll errors are now agreed that they're going to be remedied as soon as possible. And Errors in excess of eight hours are going to be paid in a separate check. Uh, we had a lot of cases where they would just try to retro it. We'd have members complaining, hey, I had so many hours in this check, it blew my taxes through the roof. Um, errors less than eight hours will still be remedied by the next period, but this is going to help us kind of get the extra check without having to argue and hopefully get pay people paid quicker for any errors. Right. And then last up is going to be parental leave. And I keep saying it, but this is another huge addition to our huge. contract. This wasn't there when I had kids, and I'm happy for anybody moving forward that needs it to have it. Yep. Effective June 1st of 2023, the company is going to provide four weeks of paid parental leave for the birth of a child, adoption of a child, or placement of a foster child. Yep. Um, this is in addition to any family leave. Right. Or any similar benefit. So let's make sure everybody understands how this, I, I, I want to kind of talk about the back and forth that happened at the table on this one as well, because this was a company proposal. Okay. The company offers parental leave to hourly workers across Lockheed Martin. Okay. So this is a benefit at the corporate level that they give to all of their employees. However, the benefit runs concurrent with family medical leave. In other words, the the company forces you to use family medical leave at the same time. So it really becomes a non-benefit. Um, we were able to, with a lot of back and forth, and I'm telling you, this was negotiated pretty aggressively. Um, we were able to get the company to drop that provision. So now it runs outside of family medical leave. It's a standalone benefit. You don't have to blow your family medical leave while you're using this. And I think one of the biggest pieces of this is we were able to tack on a 30-day return-to-work provision, which allows anyone who's using this benefit, it allows you to return to work at a reduced work schedule for 30 days after this benefit expires. So you do the four weeks of leave, and then another 30 days you can work, say, half days. And you're only going to get paid for the half days, but um, you can you can come back to work on a reduced schedule. And this was a really important thing for some of the young women that I spoke to um, who said, you know, they their experience was that it was really difficult to return to work on a full schedule after they had a child. I'm so sure. so this really helps those folks out. Yeah, and for anybody wondering why the family leave aspect is so important. So family leave, especially in Connecticut, you know, Florida, I don't think has the same benefit, but you can apply 
wife or even a neighbor in Connecticut. There's a lot more people that are, that are covered by family leave. So you might not want to waste your whole inf- family leave entitlement on parental leave. Uh, you might have your own serious medical condition. You might right. have a parent you need to take care of. Yep. So this is definitely going to give kind of the theme of our whole contract here is adding flexibility for our members to make better decisions. Yep. And there's so much more in this contract, and we're we're actually going to cut it off right there, and we're going to continue in our next episode to talk about the changes that we made to this contract. Um, some great stuff left to talk about, but um, we're looking at a, almost an hour on this episode, and we don't want to bore people, so we're going to pick up um, with Article 8 on our next episode. Um, let's talk about uh, some of the upcoming events that we have Yep. So we've got our Connecticut membership meeting on February 15th. We've got our Florida membership meeting on January 26th. And we've got the Alabama membership meeting on January 24th. And just to remind you again, we've got those VSO benefit briefings that are going on. We're going to put out all the updates on our website. Um, But just to give them to you again, in Connecticut, they're going to be the 24th and 25th of January. And in Florida, they're going to be the 31st of January and the 1st of February. Yep. So there's a lot of stuff coming up that we need to talk about. We've been away for a little while, like we opened the show talking about, and and we have some catching up to do. Um, We're going to, of course, continue talking about the new CBA in our next episode. Uh, The Alabama contract is coming up. The company has already contacted the union to talk about um, possibly negotiating that contract early. So Alabama negotiations are right on the heels of Connecticut. So that's exciting. Um, things are heating up with the UPS national agreement. I know that um, Sean O'Brien's been in the news. He's been talking um, publicly about these negotiations coming up. Lots to talk about there. So stay tuned. Keep on listening. We have a lot to talk about. Um, and, and that's about it for this episode. Remember, it was former United States Secretary of Labor Tom Perez, who spoke the words that we live by and that embody the work that Local 1150 has been doing over the last several months. He said, to fulfill the promise of economic opportunity, we must remain true to the principle that collective bargaining is a cornerstone of a free society and indispensable to a strong middle class. Wow. So that's it. That's us. Um, Thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, Thanks for downloading. Thanks for following us. If you're not following the 10 to 12 podcast, shame on you. Go to Podbean right now and follow us. Remember to email us and let us know what you like about the podcast. Let us know what you hate about the podcast. But email us and tell us what you think. It's comms at teamsters1150.org. That's C-O-M-M-S at teamsters1150.org. Again, thanks for spending some time with us. I'm Stephen French. And I'm Jason Shoemaker. We'll see you next time.